unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. Welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today? I'm good, Nathan. How are you? I'm good. And for the video viewers, they already know we got a special guest lined up for today and looking at the show notes. I'm excited for this episode because it's one of the, I think it's one of the best things in copywriting right now. So I'm just going to tease it with that and hand it over to you. Great. Okay. Thanks. So our guest today, Aaron Gensler, has been around the block a few times on his path to success in financial copywriting. In 2006, he managed to get a job with a, an entry-level job with Agora Financial in Baltimore. And that year he met two important people, Joe Schrieffer and Jack Ford. This first job began a long and winding road, which got him to where he is today as chief marketing officer for the large financial publisher, Malden Economics. Aaron's coming on the podcast today to talk about what it really takes to make it in financial copywriting. We'll hear about his own journey as well as some of his experiences training and advocating for younger copywriters and what he has seen that spells bad news for some people trying to get their foot in the door in the first place. Plus, he'll share some in-the-trenches insights about what works and what doesn't work with stories in copywriting. First, let me share this. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. And most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims, and if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. So, Aaron, welcome. We've known each other for a while, and I'm really glad you're on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. It sounds like we have a lot to cover. Thank you for that very polite, very nice intro. Hi, you're welcome. We do. So I want to get right into this, um, especially for people who want to get into financial copying. We'll talk about your story in a bit, but what's the number one red flag you see with new copywriters? In financial specifically, the number one red flag I see with new copywriters is uh, they're very long on techniques of persuasion and very short on the understanding of market mechanics and how investing works for regular folks. The best success that I've, I've had over the years onboarding new copywriters, bringing new copywriters into the business, whether that junior or someone who's more experienced that has been around for a while, you need that deep understanding of the market and how it works and what the markets look like. The changing market, constantly changing market environment for everyday regular investors, our prospects, right? The people that we're trying to build these great relationships with. You need that, you need that understanding beyond just the techniques of persuasion. Yeah. And, and that's interesting because you don't need it so you can go get a job with Goldman Sachs and, and start doing research reports, you know, for institutional investors and, and journalists. You need to understand how it all works. And then you need to understand how it's going to appear to the customer, right? I mean, that's an additional yeah. layer of understanding. And, you know, you can have the best persuasive chops in the world, but if you can't navigate your way through that, right? It's 50-50, especially. Like you can, 
I mean, we see we see offers all the time where you're like this. The, the the case that they're making is very strong, but the proof is so thin, right? That, that's like a common critique. And that's not just financial. You see that all the time. You get, you know, supplement offers in the mail or whatever's working right now. That copy sticks out like a sore thumb. Like, man, they're, they're, they're really pulling out all the stops. They're checking all the boxes when it comes to persuasion. But you, you get that. It's a visceral thing. It's a gut feeling. I just don't quite believe this. I'm just not getting over the hump on this idea. That's what we want to avoid, right? So, and that's where that's where that deep understanding of the markets is so useful for us. Yeah, I, I was looking at a letter. A guy very experienced, very successful yesterday, but he would make these huge claims about his what do you call it, discovery call, you know, pitch call to to sign up for his program, and the claims were unbelievable, and the proof was non-existent. And I said, this letter's not going to work too well. You know, I think you need to tone down the claims and and build up the proof for what you actually can do anyway. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're on the same page and certainly in financial, I mean, you've got the most skeptical people in the world as your prospects, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't have a, you know, niche by niche. I'm sure there's skeptical prospects everywhere. Uh, I would hope there is, but financial is somewhat unique because people come to alternative finance and it's just depending upon the offer, depending upon the USP that you're talking about, there could be some some play here, some leeway. But people come to alternative finance generally because they've had bad experiences in mainstream finance. They had a pile of money with a broker who was supposed to be full service, and then the COVID crash happened, or 2008, 2009 happened, and they had a bad result. And they're like, well, man, there's got to be something else out there. Those are, that's how people find the messages in the first place. So the barriers the skepticism is so high for so many people that you have to put that, that, that credibility, the authority, the trust building, demonstration of results, right? You said it a second ago, appropriately, uh, appropriately couched promises about typical user experience in these things. Like the, those barriers are high and it's, it's, it's hard work to not only capture and maintain attention, but then also, you know, achieve conversion. Yeah. I mean, we've pounded the table about research, over and over again this podcast but i think you're making it very real right now i appreciate that all right so let's talk about you for a second um or maybe okay. for most of the rest of the podcast um what did jack ford do or share with you in 2008 and we're only talking two years in here right in 2008 yeah I, that changed your life yeah yeah okay yeah so i've said this before uh, but I'll tell the story in a little bit different way with a little bit more detail here. So this is the new the new version of my Jack Ford story. I entered the Agora Financial business as a junior copywriter in the fall of 2006. Between the fall of 2006 and the fall of 2008, uh, I put one package in the mail, uh, maybe wrote two or three back-end offers, but I was primarily uh, special reports, emails, these things like tertiary copy, secondary copy. Uh, but I had written some packages, and then there was a copywriter get together in the fall of 2008 at Courtemer in France. Uh, a bunch of writers. I want to say I don't remember specifically. I want to say it was 25, 30, maybe 35 writers from around yeah. the various Agora businesses, and the senior writers essentially served as small group mentors. We met there for a week, 
And there were, there were exercises and group discussions, copy exercises and group discussions in the mornings. There was writing time in the afternoon. We'd come back at the end of the day, we'd show our pages, we'd workshop them, we'd go through them. Anyhow, I had this idea that I was working on. I had a few pages. I arrived in France. I arrived to the group with a couple pages on this idea that I had begun working on. And again, like I was, I was learning at the time, but I had had no identifiable success yet in the industry. I was like a, an experienced junior. Let's put it that way. Like I had nothing under my belt that recommended me as like on the fast track. No, I, that wasn't me. Anyhow, they broke us into groups. Jack Ford ended up being the the mentor, the, the, the copy chief who was assigned to the group that I was in. It was five, six writers. I had met Jack over the course of the two years on and off. I'd had some conversations with him, but he and I had never worked closely together on a piece of copy. Number okay. one, my copy, my copy didn't deserve his attention. And number two, he was busy with his own stuff. So why is he going to pay attention? You know, that's just how it is in a business when you're coming up. Okay. He reads my three pages and anybody here who knows him, and I actually just retold this story to him recently. So I'm not like betraying any confidence here. He reads my three pages, kind of shrugs his shoulders, doesn't smile, doesn't frown, nothing, gives it back to me. And he's like, eh, it's okay. And I remember thinking, okay, so if that's the only feedback I get from Jack and didn't tear it to shreds and he didn't tell me that it was an unworkable idea and he didn't tell me that it was terrible, that must mean it's worth continuing to work on. And I took that sort of like, eh, it's okay that he did. And I used that as the fuel that got me all the way through the first draft of that package. It ends up between initial runs and then changes that were made to it, it kind of became a template for a while. And it probably did, all told, it probably did 50, 60 million. Yeah, that's okay. That's more than okay. Uh, that's pretty yeah, awesome. That, that, was a, that was over many years, different iterations, different, you know, templated, like I said, like people that relied on that template. I'm just like, and again, I'm not saying that to brag or anything. There's people out there that put up big numbers. But that was the one, that was the idea that was the idea that put me, again, not on the fast track, but it means something different to everybody. But that was the one that put me on the map. That was the one that got me some institutional credibility. That was the one that got me access to better ideas moving forward. And then from there, like it was just building blocks and you keep doing the work, you stay with it. You know, here I am 17 years later, still still trucking. Back to Back to him real quick. The reason he's the central part of that story when I tell it is because I mean, he was the goat, right? He was at that time in the business. He was he was the man. If you had even tacit blessing from him on your idea, it meant that success was possible. And in that moment, on that trip, in that group, that's all I needed. And I took that seed and I ran with it. Okay, so I'm going to wander into some dangerous territory because I think you make a really good point that's going to slip by a lot of people. I want to put it front and center. So we have joked and a lot of other people have raged about things like participation trophies these days, where people are basically getting credit for breathing, you know, nothing. And I think that comes from, I don't know, a generation of kids, a society at large, where people need praise and, and adulation and approval far in excess of what they've actually done or accomplished. And so what, what I want to point out is 
I don't know if it was dumb luck or maturity or or just kind of a, a hard bitten view of the world where, hey, if if everything didn't blow up today, it's the day I'm above ground kind of attitude. I don't know what it was, but I think that's really worth focusing on that you knew that the baseline was, hey, Aaron, this is a piece of shit. Why don't you try and rewrite it so at least it makes sense? Didn't say that, right? But that's the baseline. Yep. So if he says, eh, it's okay, that means, okay, you've got the, the fundamentals here. Now it's time to start doing the work to improve it. I mean, how did you know that at that point? Or why did you respond that way? I didn't. And it was revealed, you know, several months later when it was done and it was through the pipe and all that. And it was produced and it began to test and we saw the really good results. But you know, the participation trophy thing, if I can real quick, you know, anybody yeah. who's watching this, anybody who's watching this of any level of experience that you're dealing with different, you're freelancing, you're dealing with different businesses, or maybe you're embedded in a business, like your ultimate responsibility is to provide fantastic experience to the customers in that business and by extension be economically productive for the bottom line of that business the customer and the bottom line those are the only two factors that you need to focus on who gives you praise who doesn't who like yo that was fantastic like it didn't work but we'll get them next time like don't walk around looking for that stuff because people with their eye on the ball who are focused on the customer and they're focused on the business don't have time to hold hands right yeah, so get that awesome. get that get that out of your system focus on the customer focus on the health of the business that's where you're going to derive your value and you need to put your focus there 100 right that, so that's a long-term survival and thriving strategy rather than a dopamine strategy i like that could you talk about some hard won lessons along the way. I mean, I think the, the Jack Ford one is like enough value for the entire podcast, but I'm not going to stop asking you here. Please go, keep going. Yeah. I say this all the time. I'm a huge believer in this. You need to care. You need to be passionate about the ideas. Passion is a very key element for me. If you lose passion, the, you, the dip is real, right? fatigue and, and these things, if you spend a month on a project and you do all this deep research and then you put it out there and it doesn't give you the result that you want, you know, it can affect you and it can be, it, it can, it can harm the quality of your work for a short period of time going forward. You have to have strategies, personal, your own strategies. It's different for everybody. You need strategies that you can deploy that help you get out of those low times, those bad times as quickly as possible so that you can clear away the cobwebs, get your head clear and get back to work because that's what your customer needs. And that's what the bit like back to the customer and the business, right? Like you can't, I, mean, I, I, there was a time when I, every, every win and loss, every success or failure affected my sense of self-worth. You need to find a way to put that down and get back to work the next day. Like you're going to have you're going to have offers that go out that, you know, unexpectedly punch a hole in the sky and everybody, you know, it's so successful that everybody's laughing until they piss their pants, right? Don't get too high in those times because the next you're going to beef it on one right around the corner and don't get too low during those times. So do the work, stay honest to the work, stay honest to the research, serve the customer, don't get too high, too low. I just said that and I said that in two minutes. I still struggle with that 18 years in. That's a daily that's a daily piece of the work. And if I can, in communicating that, if I can save a bad part of the dip 
for one writer out there who's like, you know what? I'm just going to put this to the side. I'm going to come back and I'm going to crush it tomorrow. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do the work. If I can save somebody a day of the dip, then I will have done my job here. That's terrific. Let me make a couple comments. First of all, the dip is one of the few books by Seth Godin that I happen to like a lot. And it's, it's about the fact that after, I guess, after success or maybe along the way to success, there are low periods and it's not about avoiding them. It's about getting through them and, and staying as strong as you can during them. Uh, the, the other thing is there's, you know, this kind of, I don't know, entrepreneurial people trade their brains for the power of positive thinking. They just, they assume, well, I can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. I'm, I'm actually, that's a quote. Our brains aren't wired that way. We're going to have negative thoughts. The, the question is not whether or not you have them. And, and what you're talking about is find a strategy to get through it and to get through it as fast as possible. That's a lot more real world. I, I really like that. Yeah. You know, if I, I want to say one more thing, too, about hard-won lessons. This is a big one for me. There's no substitute for top of mind, right? Marion McGrath, I haven't spoken to him in a while, but a good, good guy, great writer. I remember him saying one time that ideas exist in a specific time and place, right? The tide of mass desire, the zeitgeist, the awareness, what are people talking about right now? It's real and it's powerful. You're not going to convince somebody for some left field. You can, right? But that's a different style of copy. That's a different type of offer. Like right. stick with what's in the conversation right now because that's where desire and interest are. You want it to be, you want to, you want to funnel that, right? Your idea, your USP. You don't want to go out there and create it because it just makes everything so much harder. So then you write, you put all this time and effort and research into these ideas that don't work. And then you get in the dip and then you look back on it a couple months later and you're like, I was nowhere near the mark to begin with because nobody cared about that, right? So that's another thing that you pick up over time and you only learn that with failure. Yeah, I understand that. that those are words of wisdom. Everybody, maybe rewind to listen to that part again. That's, that's really good. Okay, so we were talking, you and I, about having a, a a mentor and or maybe not a mentor maybe an advocate for your mm -hmm. development in your career and the two types of time saving the one that's good that involves strategies and the one that's bad that involves not doing all the work you should do could could you talk about that yeah jack was one of those early mentors for me joe greg you know guys that i worked with in the business at that time i was just like I look back on that so fondly. Like not only you know I, those are friendships that you know that that I have to this day, but they were big on the, like what, the way I learned. And like I don't know, this makes me, I guess like old school. I sound like some old. I'm only 43, but I sound like some fucking you know. Like I'm like ah oh, back when I was working with Ogilvy. You know that's that's not what I'm trying to say. But you like, sound like a sailor. And yeah. You sound like the guy. You sound like the uh, the bartender in Two Bar. Have you ever heard that? Okay. Yeah. 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 So. Find ways to use the research that you're doing, the ideas that you're building, the conversations that you're having with your edit, your, you know, your gurus, your prospects. Find ways to create shortcuts that positively inform the end result. That's good. That's, that's hacking the process in a responsible, high-integrity, customer-first way, right? Those are the tips and hacks and these things. I don't know what the right word is. I don't like the, what's a hack, right? But like, those are the things we should be focused on as professionals because they make us more efficient and they positively inform the quality of the end result. What you don't want to do is focus on the stuff that cuts corners. 
that decreases the quality or the depth of the research that mm. negatively impacts fulfillment, right? Or puts your puts your guru or your product leader or whatever it is for your niche that puts them in a position where it makes it more difficult for them to fulfill appropriately, right? Don't ever put the person who's out in front of your product, your fulfillment, your service, whatever the case may be, don't ever promise or do anything that puts them in a position that makes it more difficult because that only leads to headache and heartache down the road, right? So do the work, do the research and build yourself processes that positively inform the end result. Never do it in a way that cuts corners. Yeah, I love the that. And I especially love the first part because so often, we're not talking about cutting corners here, but the right way to do something, the right way to think, to approach something, the steps to take, the right way, the way that works best is counterintuitive. And sometimes you can only learn that through experience. And if you can get someone more experienced to help you cut to the quick on that can, can make a huge difference. And from an advocacy standpoint too, today on the other side of some of those relationships, working with junior or less experienced writers, I want to talk about the idea itself in a macro sense, in a big picture sense, as much as we can before you put pen to paper. Because I want, I want to ask you as many questions I want to try and punch as many holes in the idea as I possibly can before you actually be, before you go down the road of doing the real work, right? To me, that's a way that like based on, you know, such as it is, based on my experience or whatever you want to call it, I can help a writer beat their idea up before you begin that arduous journey and make it as strong as possible. To me, that's just like good like you need to have you need to have somebody who's available to do that for you around every idea that you want to build, because that's the type of advocacy that 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 the copy needs to truly develop into everything it can be. Yeah, it's it's not a, a nursemaid. It's it's tough love, but it's all in all in the service of of is this thing going to even survive in the marketplace? Much less be a big hit, be a big winner. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about something else. I've got this new book out. It's called persuasion story code. And I think, Aaron, you're in a unique position to talk about some of these ideas. You have an MFA. I'm not sure if that's in film or not, but, or fiction or something like that. It's but, in, it's uh, in, it, I wrote, I wrote screenplays as for that, for uh, in a majority of the work of the MFA, but yes, it's a fiction MFA. Okay. So you understand screenplays, you've acted in movies, right? So you understand um, this stuff better than most copywriters maybe in some ways the best of all because of, of the multiple experiences you've had. And of course, you certainly understand copy. So I want to talk about the hero's journey because, damn, it's important in a good fiction story. It's like necessary. But um, I, I think there's been, I'm going to use a word that is both Catholic and Agora, a transubstantiation that is false, mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. false. It, because a paring knife works really well um, in the kitchen doesn't necessarily mean it'll work in a knife fight. I mean, it might, but there might be knives that'll work better. And the same thing with the hero's journey, because it works really well in fiction, I'm not sure it works well in our business as copywriters, as direct response marketers, where we have to make stuff interesting. We also have to stick to the facts. And more important, people don't have an hour and a half to go through our sales letter most of the time, or if they do, they need more than just a story. Let me read you something and, and maybe we could talk about it a little bit. Sure. Go, go ahead. Okay. 
The hero's journey is a very powerful concept. And when you're writing a story for Hollywood or a fiction publisher, the hero's journey is a reliably winning formula. But there are a couple of problems when you try to use it for persuasion. It's complicated and tricky to master. It has many moving parts and takes great knowledge, practice, and skill to create a successful hero's journey story. Besides the difficulty, and this is what I was talking about before the transubstantiation thing, there's another problem. For many experts, the hero's journey has become a deity. These experts worship it as though it were the only kind of story that works for anything. But that's just not true. For the vast majority of persuasion situation, using a hero's journey story is the equivalent of wearing a tuxedo or fancy evening dress to go out in the woods and cut down some trees. Yeah, the fancy clothes the Hollywood in crowd wears to attend the Academy Awards look stunning. The makers of hero's journey stories can be really sharp dressers. And it's easy to see why people accept the idea that the only kind of story that works is a hero's journey story. Americans spend an average of two hours, 33 minutes a day watching TV. All the movies and fictional series use some version of the hero's journey to tell their stories. We see these shows and movies over and over again, so it's understandable that anyone would come to the conclusion that when it comes to telling a story in any situation, it's got to be a hero's journey story. Only one problem. Hero's journey stories are not how we talk, most of the time anyway, in real life, especially in business situations. Our everyday language is more casual and straightforward. As for hero's journey stories, well, they're tremendously entertaining. And occasionally, occasionally, a simplified hero's journey story can work for persuasion. But most of the time, a persuasion story is a much better fit. Why? Because people are used to reading and watching hero's journey stories to escape real life, not to engage in real life, to get away from it. When people want to persuade others, they talk in plainer, simpler ways than the theatrical storyteller does. In doing so, they tell much more straightforward stories. The plain, simple language, especially when it is based on the truth, is just more believable. And to persuade, you must first be believed. How does, how does that resonate with you? Well, first, let me say about the book. When you and I talked recently, I told everyone in my organization that you had a book coming out. Jason, the one dude works with us, good writer, good dude. He got his copy yesterday. He said he's about a third of the way through it. He really likes it. And he said to say, uh, congrats on putting out the new book. So I, I've ordered Thank one you. as well. And I was, I was hoping it would show up so I could actually read some of it before we talked. But Amazon, you know, dragging their backsides, I guess. So I haven't gotten mine yet, but I'll read it as soon as I get it. Anyhow. I agree. I, I agree with everything that you said in that passage. Like uh, there's crutches of technique that get used well, and then they get used so much that they lose the prospects, the, 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 the focusing power that they can have for prospects. Euro's journey is one of those. There's just like, there's like models that are used and over relied on with a complete lack of nuance. And you see this in copy all the time. You're just like, okay, here we go again with this one, you know, and I think what you're what you're talking about there is is a question of nuance. Like we're not saying don't use these reliable models that we know make for easy formats that have people understand where the story's going, but use them in unique and compelling ways and do the work to make sure that you're actually communicating what you think you are to the prospect. So and I know that I know that your book is like jam-packed with, you know, ways ways to go about that. 
but yeah, Achilles heel is a modification of hero's journey that I particularly like, right? I'm successful. I I did this. I did that. I came up this way. You see this all the time in a variety of copies, but, and then the Achilles heel situation takes place. This was my, this was my great setback. This was my downfall and how I overcame it. Right. That's creating that's rather than the hero's journey. And now I'm on top of the mountain and you can be just like me. You demonstrate a little Achilles heel. You're creating commonality with your prospects because you are subject as the guru. You're subject to the same pitfalls and setbacks as everybody else via XYZ, whatever the mechanism is. I overcame this and now I've achieved this, right? That's it's a nuance. It's a twist on these models. So be smart about how you use that stuff. So yes, to, to answer your question, I, I agree with what you said in that passage and it, it resonates quite well with me. Well, thank you. Let, let me, let me read one more thing. So I'm defining stories very differently than um, the world does or the world outside of persuaders and especially salespeople and especially copywriters. I'm saying a, a story is something you say that has the, you know, mesmerizing effect of a story, but it might not have a beginning, a middle end, usually has people in it, but it can be, you know, very short, three, four sentences. So I, I have a kind of story called stories about what your prospect is experiencing and a particular kind called stories about your prospect's pain. And let, let, me, let me read you this and get your reaction. When you build your stories this way, you create a sense of motion through time, but very economically. Adding motion in this crisp way adds impact and depth to your story. And though there is motion, one thing is missing from these stories, an ending. I don't mean they're eternal stories that go on for centuries. What I mean is they're open-ended, on purpose, because when you have a story about a problem without a fixed ending, your reader or listener really wants to know what the ending is, and that gives you the opportunity to present your solution later as an offer, which will be much more likely, they'll be much more likely to buy since it's something they've been wanting. So to be clear, these stories are not self-contained ads or sales pitches, but they are integral components of a larger persuasive message, and they make the message that much stronger. And oh boy, one thing I'm writing here goes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning, you and me, Aaron. One more thing before we get to the stories themselves, and that's research. Making stuff up without any specific knowledge or personal experience will usually create a story that does not come across as authentic at all. Make sure this doesn't happen by doing some research ahead of time. The best kind of research is simply talking to people suffering from the problem, but that's not always possible to do. Almost as good as going onto sites that have customer comments like Amazon or discussion forums like Reddit. What you're looking for is how, what people describe and how they describe it when they're talking about the problem. Reading what they say will give you a lot of valuable information to create your story. And this is an example of one of those stories that I wrote for a joint pain supplement. After a while, every morning you hate to get up, not because you're sleepy. You're well-rested enough. The problem is the pain in your knees. You don't feel it much at first, but after that first cup of coffee, every time you move your knees, it's like sandpaper is grinding against your bones underneath your skin. Yeah, I agree with uh, what you said there a minute ago. It's part of a larger arc, right? They're not necessarily self-contained experiences. Um, the the knee, the joint pain piece that you just quoted from, like that's 
that's it's obvious to that prospect who's suffering with that problem that the person creating that message is intimately aware of what that problem looks like. That's another that's another research point too. This is it's a little bit in the weeds, but describing the problem and putting the prospect then then future pacing the prospect to the point where via the solution their their problem no longer exists. That's an artful process and you need to be very careful how you do it because one false note, the whole argument can fall apart, right? Yeah. Um, there was a lot in what you just said <laughs> that I would probably respond to, but I'm more excited than uh, more excited than ever now for my book to arrive later today and to begin reading it because I think you're talking about a lot of key stuff. Like what, like I said at the beginning, like you, you read copy, you come across offers and you're just like, this is false. This, this isn't what this prospect cares about. This, well, they didn't do the work here, you know, that type of stuff. And what you're talking about is good old fashioned brain power technique that writers, off creators can bring to what they're doing to take it to another level. You're on a bullseye on this one for sure. Thank you. All right. So if people want to get in touch with you. Yeah, I love I love talking about what we're talking about here. I love talking about ideas. I love talking about copy. I, like, I don't financial, not financial. I love like you see somebody you see a TV commercial like I get I get obsessed with, you know, just like random bits of advertising that you come across like I live and breathe this stuff, you know. So, yeah, if anybody wants to talk about anything, you know, shoot the breeze, whatever. Aaron, A-A-R-O-N at MaldenEconomics.com. Okay, and we'll put that in the show notes, too. Speaking of TV advertisements, everybody knows that we love the insurance commercials here on the Copywriters Podcast. <laughs> yeah, Talking especially geckos. the one with the emu. That's such a great use of the company <laughs> resources. All right. One more time before we're out of here, let people know your website and how to get a hold of you, Aaron. The business that I'm part of, the research that we publish is MaldenEconomics.com. My email address, Aaron at MaldenEconomics.com. And that's A-A-R-O-N. Thank you so much for coming on. I think this was a great episode. I love the insight about believability versus persuasion and having the facts and the evidence to back up the claims and not leading so much on the claims. There's so much just valuable information in this episode. So thank you for coming on. And hopefully we can have you again in the near future and if you enjoyed this episode if you enjoyed this episode as much as i did head on over to copywriterspodcast.com check out more over there and until next time we will catch you later catch you later thanks aaron thanks guys yep. Are you getting tired of using the hero's journey in your sales copy over and over again? My book, The Persuasion Story Code, will help you put together stories that convince your prospects and resolve their objections. If you are a copywriter, you'll appreciate that every single one of the 25 kinds of stories in this book have been proven time and time again in profitable sales copy. But I've also used these kinds of stories to close five and six figure deals for my own business and so have many of my clients. These stories are easy to create and easy to tell. They sound like ordinary conversation, but they are all designed and proven to lead to a yes. You can get the Persuasion Story Code on Amazon.com. So get your copy today. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.